Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Welcome back for another episode of Opto Sessions. Today I'm joined by Joe Kunkel, our options hall to his 67,000 Twitter followers. A former equity analyst at Thomson Reuters and founder of optionshalt.com, Joe has made a living identifying the stocks others miss, digging deep to find that next small cap destined for household name status. Are options actually the most flexible way to trade? Is this where the smart money is? And can you follow options flow to track big money moves? Joe reveals all on today's podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Hayden Brain, Editor-at-Large at Opto, and today I'm joined by Joe Kunkel. Joe is the founder of OptionsHawk.com and runs a subscription service providing premium market analysis. Joe is also the Head Research Analyst and Portfolio Manager at Relativity Capital. Having managed both institutional accounts and his own, Joe previously worked as an equity analyst for Thomson Reuters and has since been featured across numerous media outlets, including Seeking Alpha, Seat Market, and many more. So, hello, Joe. Hey, Aiden. Nice to join you. Thanks very much. Um, so I wanted to start with uh, just talking about your career and your background, and I was keen to get an understanding of how you got to where you are today. So if I could just start by asking what your first job was in finance or investment management. Uh, my first job right out of college was with uh, Investment Bank and Trust, who was acquired by State Street later. It was more of a corporate actions, back office role. Um, looking into mergers, acquisitions, and all, all different types of corporate actions. Yeah, and uh, you studied investment management uh, at university, is that yeah, right? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I did a, my bachelor's in finance at Bentley, which is up in Boston, and then I moved after graduating into uh, Boston University. I did a master's in investment management, which is pretty unique and focused program straight on investment management. There really wasn't anything else like it around the country so it was really fit what I was looking to do yeah sure so I mean you were obviously quite set on your career and what you wanted to do from from a fairly young age what what kind of drew you to investment management in the first place it was just always a passion of mine I uh even I think back like in high school we had uh for football we had three practices a day we called three days and you know you'd stay for the morning and mid afternoon one and then you go home and most of my teammates would take naps and I'd be tuning into financial television and just kind of soaking stuff up as a sponge. And then, uh, I mean, I guess some of it might've been in my blood, so to say my uh, mom's grandfather worked on wall street. So, and my parents were, they weren't super active investors, but they understood finance and they were involved in the stock market. So I was surrounded by it at a pretty early age and just kind of, uh, something I always look forward to doing. Yeah, sure. And then you, uh, you, you went on to work as an equity analyst at Thomson Reuters. Is that, um, I mean, equity analysis uh, has kind of been a, a, a prominent theme throughout your career. Is that re- really where you sort of developed and honed your analysis technique? Yeah, I think that in a combination, just uh, the background at the BU program, but um, at uh, Thomson Reuters kind of came on board there working on a new product that was basically covering the, the markets, uh, mainly focused on the equity and option markets. And through that, we were, you know, in discussions with lots of the top hedge funds around the country and everything else developing this product and pretty much kind of gave me the ideas for what I'm doing now and really was like the starting point 
and then it also just provided a lot of background and really good uh experience yeah sure so then um obviously you, you went on to kind of actually manage accounts both uh institutional and and your own uh, if i'm correct um were you so when you were managing institutional accounts and maybe you can tell us whether you're still doing that and kind of how that how that's played out uh, were you what what sort of markets were you trading then yes yeah, so, i mean i've always managed my own accounts that was kind of my focus and then uh also did some of these what they call like hedge fund backer agreements where a fund would just kind of back my trading and i'd trade for them and you know they cut me a share of the profits um and with that i was using the same approach i use now uh tracking options flow and trading both equities and on the options side of the market and more currently it's just managing mostly my own accounts as well as uh providing my research role to relativity capital which is our managed accounts company yeah sure so um do you have a preference between the two sort of managing institutional accounts and i guess other people's money um sort of versus your own yeah i mean i don't know i wouldn't say i have a preference but i feel a lot more comfortable with my own just because it feels like a lot more pressure to perform for others and just not wanting to disappoint people you know and people have faith in you and they put it in you know you're doing your best always and putting your hard work in and you just want to show the results so it's just a definitely a lot more pressure and tend to be a little more conservative than on my own accord because if it's just me i'm like oh yeah it's okay i can lose money and i know i'll recover back or i have lots of earnings power remaining in my life and you know so it's definitely a completely different mental battle yeah and i guess you have to conform to that person's uh objectives i suppose whereas you, you know your own objectives and you can be fairly flexible on them um, yeah it's very hard to especially if you have a pool of clients to be you know they have their own objectives and risk parameters so it's you're dealing with multiple people as opposed to just knowing you know yourself as well as anybody so you know exactly what you can uh look for and try to withstand but yeah it's definitely a completely different playing field yeah sure um, and then uh, just on the uh, options hawk side of things, so so what you uh, kind of currently focus on, you're providing sort of uh, institutional level analysis there. Um, but you know, you uh, as we've discussed, you worked as an equity analyst at Thomson Reuters, and that that's kind of throughout your career uh, formed a big part um, of your day to day. So why the focus on research? Do you, are you is that something that you think you're particularly good at? Is that, is that where your edge is kind of being able to do the homework on these companies? Yeah, I definitely do research. I mean, it's always been my passion and kind of the core of my trading decisions. Um, it just keeps me disciplined having to constantly do the work. And I've always been a real hard worker and pretty disciplined with everything. So I put in the time and just discovering great companies has always kind of been my focal point and where I've really excelled. I can really dig in and find these companies before, when they're, you know, smaller market caps that turn into these, you know, companies now that everybody recognizes. So just the whole process. And it's also just has a real good feeling at the end of, you know, you, you see your results from the work you put in. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so based on that, then what, what, what would you say makes a good analyst? What sort of characteristics? I think being open-minded is just one of the real main things. You know, I always see people and 
they'll put themselves in a box. You know, I'm a technical analyst. I'm a fundamentalist. I'm a macro. And I mean, I just, to me, why not use it all? Why not, you know, learn everybody's perspectives? And if you, the more knowledge you have, the better informed decisions you're making. So just being able to, you know, dive into each type of methodology and being able to also just think outside the box and be, have some foresight, you know, looking to the future, kind of that whole go to where the skate or the puck's going to be not where it is now. And just, you know, always looking, being future minded. Yeah, sure. And um, well, I, th- I think that quite uh, nicely sort of covers your background. Um, and I want to move us sort of quickly on to options trading because obviously that's your focus. Um, but I'm conscious our audience or not all of them will know what options trading is and, and the benefits uh, that, that it gives traders. So I wondered whether you could give us a quick pricey of how option trading differs from trading the underlying equity. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously it's a subject matter that could probably write a couple hundred page book on. So to keep it as concise as possible, I mean, an option is just a contract that gives you the right to buy or sell the underlying asset at a specific price before a certain date. And I mean, the main usages of them are via income strategies, speculating on directional, and also as a protective and hedging risk. Um, So, I mean, that's the real cut and dry version (laughs) of what option contract is before without teaching a lesson you know <laughs> yeah sure so then what why, why options why did you decide to focus on that what do you like about it well i think my draw to it was just that uh it's probably the ability to you know especially when i was young it's not having a lot of capital but being able to utilize that capital and make bigger returns on a percentage basis but uh i mean now that i'm more educated on it and experienced flexibility is just the great thing with options. I mean, you define your dollar risk, you know exactly what you're, you're willing to risk, you know, where, what you can make. And even on the other side for people wanting to make like negative bets against companies, you don't have to worry about borrowing or the borrow rates. You can bet against companies easily. And unlike equities where you either are betting on it to go up or down options, you can do tons of things. You can make money on, something going nowhere by being short volatility or, you know, or vice versa. So it's just the flexibility of it and just all the different structures is just opens up so many different opportunities. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, yeah, you mentioned the flexibility there, but would you also say um, it could be argued at least that it's a less risky form of trading? Yeah. I mean, if you do it right, it's, I always go back and forth on that because sometimes I'll see people say, it's less risky because you're, you know, you're allocating less, but you can also quickly lose, you know, on a percentage basis a lot quicker than you would on an equity. So it's all about being aware of that. And when you are taking on an options allocation, you know, you do it at the percentage of the equity. So you're still, your value at risk is, you know, either less or similar. So you definitely have to define your risk and not make the same size trades so if you're putting 50,000 into a normal equity long say you don't want to be putting 50,000 into you know the options on your, you want to uh, probably the one one hundredth of the contract so like five thousand dollar position say but just being able to know you're you know defining your dollar risk because on a percentage basis you can obviously quickly lose with options as well 
Yeah, sure. And um, I guess then as a result of that, um, it's, it's quite accessible. I mean, you talked about it when you were younger, you didn't have necessarily the startup capital that, that others might further along in their career. So, um, I mean, firstly, would you agree with that? Do you think it's quite an accessible route into trading? Yeah, I do. And one, I mean, another way to look at it too is with, uh, especially now, I mean, we've been in this market that's risen for, you know, a decade and a lot of the great companies out there say what, Amazon, Apple, and all these Google, they're trading at, you know, $1,400, $1,500 a share, $2,500 a share. They're not, um, with that, they're not doing splits really. So that's a lot of allocation just to have one share of Amazon. You know, you're paying $2,400, 10 shares, you're 24,000 within the options market. You can define exactly how much, you know, money you want to risk without having to take on, a huge capital position and still being able to generate those kind of returns. So it's really helpful with high dollar stocks, I find. Yeah, sure. Um, and so I guess then that, that leads me to the question of, of why don't more people trade options? I mean, at least in your opinion, do, do, do you have sort of thoughts on that? Well, I think I would say maybe a year or two ago before that, I, I just think it was deemed more risky and people were still kind of stricken from the financial crisis. Whenever they hear the word derivative, you know, they want to run. And it's still kind of like that on the uh, money management side today. A lot of people are just, when you mentioned you want to trade options in their portfolio, they do, oh, that's, that's risky. You know, they just have this assumption that there's a lot more risk with it because of, it's more of a perception thing with media and, you know, there's, there's stories that come out and the negative ones tend to stick in people's mindsets over the years of what could go wrong with derivatives. But I mean, if you're looking now at the exchange data and all that, and uh, Goldman Sachs put out a nice study too, but uh, all indications are people are starting to, you know, trade it a lot more and it's replacing a lot of the equity volume now. But uh, I think just the longer learning curve of it has kept a lot of people away a long time, but, uh, I guess now people have a lot more time at home, so maybe more people will be interested in, you know, studying and learning more financial techniques. But so now I think the trend is definitely still continuing now towards, you know, more people trading it and the volumes are definitely showing that. Although a lot of that's on the institutional side, but I believe on the retail side, we're seeing the same thing uh, according to the brokerages. And do you, and do you think um, the US are a little bit ahead of that? I mean, relative to the UK, for example. Um, I mean, I really wouldn't know. I don't, I have no real idea what kind of trading's happening uh, in Europe or overseas, I, but definitely in the U.S. I think, um, based on the people I talk to every day in my industry, there's definitely a lot more interest in the options field. And uh, I mean, for the options hawk business, it's, it just keeps growing. So there's lots, lots of more people taking interest in this, the, uh, this style. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that, that's really helped me to sort of get a better understanding of it. And hope, hopefully it has um, for our listeners as well. So I kind of wanted then to uh, tackle your trading strategy specifically. Um, and uh, I mean, yeah, as, as we've discussed, options won't be for everyone. Um, but during a time of sort of unprecedented volatility, is now a good time to trade options? I mean, normally we would say like volatility is an option trader's best friend because there's just a ton of opportunity. The ranges expand. There's, you know, faster profit making, especially if you're short-term trading and focused on that. Um, it hasn't quite been so with the current market just because this unprecedented volatility also came with a complete lack of liquidity. So it's been nearly impossible to trade individual names through March and 
part of April just because the bid ask spreads have been so wide and there's just not a market being made out there anymore. And there's, if you're trying to trade you, it's really tough to get quality fills. And if you're not, if you're just trying to, you know, if you're not um, disciplined and paying the market price, you're going to get a lot of bad fills and I call it slippage. So right away you're kind of starting in the hole just from not getting a good fill at the uh, price you want. So it's a lot harder to make money when you're not getting that kind of, you know, the right price. Yeah. So the mispri- I mean, there's opportunities with mispricings versus theoretical value too, because it's been so crazy, but the uh, computer alg- algorithms are kind of hunting those out and taking them out of the market as fast as they can. And it, uh, so that's on sort of individual equities. Are there any other sort of um, assets then you're having to look to, to, to um, sort of make up for that lack of liquidity in the uh, sort of individual equity market? Yeah, I mean, what we have actually seen because of this is that there's been a ton more trading in the ETF and index options. So like SPY and the NASDAQ and obviously the VIX, but uh, even some of the sector ETFs, but it seems like that's the area where there's been better liquidity. So that's where a lot of the trading volume has really started to surge because it's just a more efficient market right there right now. Sure. And are you sort of personally invested in that side of the market and the more sort of um, passive side of the market? I mean, I don't do a ton of work on the ETF side. I tend to use them. uh, I find ETFs are good for hedging, whether it's index or if you are in a volatile market and say, you know, you do your research and you find the best semiconductor stock that you want. And uh, that's the one that you're long you can pair it with a short, you know, the SMH trades very liquid on the option size, which is the semiconductor ETF. So doing, using the index and the sector ETFs more as a offset, like for hedging towards uh, individual long baskets is where I mostly would focus. So then if we, if we move to, we, as we discussed, we're seeing unprecedented volatility at the moment and we're, and we're still sort of very much on a downward spiral it would seem but then if we look ahead towards uh, a kind of longer term market revival uh, what do you think that might look like do you think a sharp recovery is in store yeah I mean mean, it's hard to say it's just right now it's we've almost completed a V recovery it's coming back a lot further than I expected Um, I mean without getting too technical we basically came up and you know, we almost touched the 200-day moving average on the S&P, which is always seen as a critical level. So starting to roll back a little this week. In my opinion, we just about around 2,900. We pretty much hit the top of the trading range that I was kind of expecting on a bounce. So we'll see if we can if we can move back above 3,000. Heck, we might get back the new highs quicker than expected. But there's just so much uncertainty out there right now. And it's being expressed from every company that comes out with earnings this week that it was just hard to imagine. I saw when we got to the top of the range between that and also being at record high valuations, it was just tough to imagine it extending much higher than it currently did this, uh, this week when we got just about to where kind of saw the top end of this range. I've spoken to a lot of people that are seeing this uh, initial rally as just that, a kind of a minor upward tick before we head further downwards i don't know whether you have a view on that whether whether actually this is more a a short-term uptick before we head down or actually we're kind of headed up for for the longer term yeah i mean um i try to predict less and react more just because i find that uh 
people making lots of predictions tend to look foolish a lot, but uh, it's, if I was to say, I mean, if you just look at the, you know, the, the news and the uncertainty, you'd think, yeah, heck, we could go lower, but then it's all being almost offset by unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus as well. So we're in a time, there's no real playbook to look back in history even. I mean, we've had corrections before in history, but we also haven't had interest rates this low when we were correcting. So there's like a bunch of forces pushing against each other. And I would expect more to just kind of trade sideways until there's more certainty about the situation. And if we get, you know, better news that the economy's reopening up and things are looking good, you know, vaccine obviously is probably like 12 18 months out if if even that that would be the major good news that can really recover this thing but i think there's going to be more of a choppy trade the rest of the year and then we have the election uncertainty so it's kind of how the uh even with the volatility has come down recently the vix futures kind of showed that there's they continue to kind of rise in september and october around that election time frame so there's plenty of risk left in this market and with the valuations where they are, it's, it gets a lot harder to, uh, you know, find opportunities and values, especially coming 20 to 30% off the lows in the matter of six weeks or whatever it's been. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's almost impossible to be in, uh, sort of certain on anything apart from that there will be further volatility. I, I, I wondered whether you were, you were trading the VIX at all, whether you were trying to um, sort of take advantage of uh, volatility uh, specifically um sorry did you say about trading the vix yeah exactly uh no i don't do too much trading in the vix i've never really found it as a very uh as a great instrument to trade i mean i know I, it's popular in some areas but you really need to have a kind of a deep understanding of how it works and it's just never been a focal point of mine i kind of stay more to the individual companies yeah sure um, so we've, we've touched on it a couple of times, but I wanted to dig down on what you think, at least, or in your experience, the, the ideal time frame in which to trade options is. Um, I imagine it differs from trade to trade, but is there any sort of overarching lessons uh, our listeners could take for uh, the ideal time frame to trade options on? Yeah, it's not like a one size fits all. It kind of goes down to each person's uh, individual strategy and trading plan, but. Uh... I tend to be someone that kind of targets a specific catalyst and then I adjust my time frame accordingly to capture that catalyst, whether it be earnings or, you know, a conference or just an overall view of a period where I think the market range could expand, um, which any option trader also has to always be aware of theta, which is time decay. So that can hurt option buyers, but it can help option sellers. So there's, like we said before, flexibility. Some people, depending on time frame, if you're a buyer or a seller, you might have a different time frame. Um, there, at the beginning of the year, there was a ton of opportunities intraday trading options because of the you know weekly options are were becoming extremely liquid and being offered across almost every company now. And uh, I was doing a lot of options flipping, which is what I call for these very short-term trades, uh, just based on technical triggers. Just looking for a 15 to 25% move, which when you talk about equities, it's like, wow, that could take weeks. But options, I was doing this in, you know, 15 minutes to, you know, 120 minutes. Uh, I had a ton of success just flipping different contracts multiple times per day. But 
that's kind of eradicated now that there's the stuff's not as liquid and there's just not as many opportunities, but uh, yeah, there's different, so many different strategies and limitless amounts of approaches you can take. It just kind of involves coming up with a plan and your objectives and going from there. So I guess that's a long winded way of saying there's not a specific time frame I recommend, but once you have your plan, you can, with the flexibility options, you can pretty much target any amount of time frame you want. So then sort of sticking to uh, how, how you prefer to trade um, when you uh, enter these positions, are you looking for a specific risk to reward ratio? Uh, on the option side, yeah, I mean, you should always, I think, look for at least like a three to one reward to risk. Um, so often for me, that's kind of like looking for a hundred percent gain. So doubling the option contract price and versus maybe a 30% loss. So a little greater than three to one um, is kind of my sweet spot. And I just, like I say, it's specific to each person, but I also, I tend to focus kind of on like 40 to 65 Delta options. I, I don't do as much in the, you know, the really far out of the money stuff that might be like a 15 to 25 Delta. Although there you can see some really great returns if you catch it right, but they also will decay fast because it's all extrinsic value. So there's no real intrinsic value to it if you catch the wrong side of the move quickly. Do you dig into that actually? That's not that's not a term that I'm familiar with. So I'm conscious some of our listeners might might not be as well. The the which, which term? The the delta. Uh, so the delta is just the uh, the amount that the um, you know it's kind of how much the stock moves for the um, given one dollar move in the equity. So if it's a sixty five delta. The contract is expected to move sixty five cents. But I mean, there's some other factors involved, like gamma and you know theta. So it's not a perfect um, perfect you know relationship, but it's basically showing you how much the contract will move for a given $1 move in the equity. Yeah, sure. So then what's um, what's your strategy for taking profits? Uh, I mean, that's, I guess it probably applies to everybody with, it's probably the hardest thing to do selling because definitely selling too early has always been a, something uh, my whole career. And I'm sure it's with everybody just trying to be perfect is really hard in this game. So I always try to go by the approach that uh, we're not trying to catch, you know, the 20 or 15 to 20% of the bottom of a stock or the top of the stock. You really just want to catch that, uh, you know, 60 to 70% middle meat of the pie type deal. And uh, so you really got to try not to be perfect. And I usually recommend some type of rules-based approach, usually on a technical basis. Uh, I like to use like a ATR, so average true rain methods, like a chandelier exit. And then you can just, if you, once you're on the momentum and the trend of the side of a trade, you can, you know, slowly raise that up. And then other people like to take a, you know, a much more simpler effective approach, like just target a certain percentage return and, you know, move on to the next one. Uh, and there's also partials that you can, you know, partially move out of positions and in certain chunks and, Another big part of options trading is the ability to adjust. So if you have, say you have a big gain on a call contract, you can leg into a call spread and it's by selling it, you know, out of the money call against that call. And then you're locking in a portion or you can lock in a definite gain on that position. Um, the same applies if you're 
if you own a call or put and a stock moves after hours on earnings, you can, you know, buy or short the equity versus that to lock in a portion or, you know, guarantee yourself a gain in case it moves, you know, differently overnight or before the open the next day. Um, that alone would be able to roll your positions out to a new expiration, new strikes. So you're sitting on a call contract that's, you know, worked well for you. Uh, say, uh, we'll just, as an example, if you own the 50 strike and, you know, you've made 100% of it, you can roll it out to the 60 strike of the next month. So you've taken a portion of your gains off and you could lock in your initial investment, but still have a rider to, you know, make more returns on it if it continues in your favor. So um, are you having, are you sort of finding you're having to uh, enter a lot of sort of shorter term positions because of the lack of liquidity in the market that you talked about earlier and obviously to take advantage of uh, any opportunities um, that are resulting from the unprecedented volatility that we're seeing? You know, it, it has your strategy become a bit uh, more opportunistic uh, in, in this market than it has done previously? Yeah, it definitely has. I mean, I always kind of adhere to the approach that when volatility expands, your time frame contracts. So uh, in our recent investment letter for Relativity Capital, I noted that I'm currently utilizing the Muhammad Ali playbook. So float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, meaning, you know, I'm staying very active and only striking when opportunities arise and just shortening up the time frames because there's a lot of the movement we've been seeing over the, since this uh, correction happened too, which is another reason why listeners should probably be interested in options is a lot of it's been happening overnight with gaps. So we'll gap, you know, two to 3% down. And if you're just an equity trader and you get a stop in, Hey, guess what? Your stop doesn't work overnight and your stock opens well below your stop. So you're, you're slipping your losses and your risk parameters are expanding. While as you, if you own puts to protect, you know, you already defined exactly where, you're willing to, you know, get out of the, the name and you know exactly how much you're going to lose. So I think that's been a huge benefit to being in, into options during this time for sure is that almost all of the movement we're seeing is overnight. So you can protect much better than just a stop strategy on the equity, which isn't as effective in this environment. Uh, I see what you mean. Um, so are there any industries or sub-industries um, that you're sort of keeping your eye on amid this sort of uh, unusual uh, market? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think basically all this has done is kind of accelerated a shift into the new economy that we've slowly seen evolve the last couple of years. But now it's just you know, with the work from home trends and everything else, it's just kind of accelerating what was going to happen and take time. But uh, it's just happening at a quicker pace now. So I mean, a lot of my favorite themes and com uh, companies, are, they still apply to this environment and they're working in their favor. So most of the opportunities I've been finding is in tech because, I mean, we're becoming a service economy and technology oriented. So there's, whether it be software or internet based, there's a lot of opportunities in tech for disruption to continue and just that whole digital shift. Um, same applies to the payments industry, shifting to digital from cash and, Outside of that, I mean, healthcare, I always kind of focus on because people are always going to get sick. People are, I mean, the uh, demographics of the aging society, there's always going to be need for, you know, pharma drugs, biotech, uh, definitely in this time with the pandemic, um, and as well as medical technology, which has taken some hit on the elective side, but that's very transitory in near term. But uh, 
longer term, I mean, medical technology has just always been one of my core interests and it's been a great area to find growth. Um, on the other side of that, I mean, you're talking industrials and uh, some of the consumer discretionary areas and transports, a lot of the stuff that's more macro correlated, that's going to struggle for a while and we're not going to have a lot of clarity. So kind of goes this thing of I always people will ask, well, this is a good company here, but it's in the, you know, if it's in a bad sector though, it's like, why try to make money where it's hard to make money? You know, let's focus on what's working and, you know, there's easier money to be made in names less uh, impacted by not only the current events, which is kind of like a once in a hundred year type thing, but whenever there's a macro downturn, there's certain themes, industries, sectors that can, you know, still perform very well despite the environment. Yeah, sure. I wonder whether you could give us a few examples of some of those companies within the sectors that you picked out. So either tech or healthcare, um, just to, just to give our listeners sort of a flavor of the sort of equities we're talking about. Even, I, I mean, I know, um, because of the uh, level of research that you do, you're, you're probably um, uh, in the know or uh, across some of the smaller cap companies that our listeners won't even be aware of. So if there's any of those sorts of uh, equities that you can uh, highlight, that would be that would be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess if we go industry by industry, or I mean, there's just a lot of great companies. One I wrote about for you guys in November was Teladoc, which I saw as the future of healthcare, um, just being with telemedicine. And now that a lot of people are home and even our doctors for our kids are having us instead of coming to the office, they're just doing telemedicine uh, visits over the phone. So that's just a huge industry and had complete scarcity value because there's no real other way to invest in that theme outside of that stock. Um, and then you have your players like Slack, uh, just very good for collaborative teams, all these people working from home. It's going to be a lot of, a lot of that going on that they need to collaborate and have a, you know, a place to go to share ideas and documents and everything else and stay on top of things. Um, a company that reported last night that I really like is bandwidth and the ticker symbols, B A N D band. Um, they're actually up quite a bit today. It's this company I own. Uh, they're in the CPAS space, which is, kind of an offshoot of software, but with uh, communication technology. So it kind of ties into Slack and Microsoft Teams and all that, their technology. Um, and then on the medical technology side, I mean, Dexcom's always been one of my favorite names. It's uh, disrupting the diabetes industry, which the trends there are just, you know, outrageous. Um, so they have the best technology. And even when that's not something that's kind of elective. They've been pretty insulated from this whole sell-off and done very well. Um, video games, I mean, gaming's not slowing down, and there's a lot of you know positives in that industry, whether it be like micropayments or the whole shift to online and down, digital downloads increasing their margin profiles. So uh, Activision's probably been one of my favorites in that group. Um, yeah, sure. I, mean, I could go on forever. <laughs> I, have some, I have a lot of companies in my brain. <laughs> but No, I mean, that's really interesting. And you've written about these companies on, on Opto for us. Um, we, we, we get a, an article sort of every couple of weeks from you. And we're actually collaborating on an ebook. You're, you're, you're writing sort of some of the sub industries uh, and sectors of the market that you think might be interesting during this sort of upturn post 
sort of pad- pandemic chaos um, and, and that'll be out soon as well so we'll dig a lot deeper into into some of the companies that you mentioned there and, and some others as well so our so our listeners and readers can look out for that i just wanted to dig into your process really because there's a lot of kind of smaller companies there that you will have mentioned that people won't have heard of and uh, i'm certainly interested to know sort of how you come across them what's your process for finding out more about them can can you talk to us about that at all yeah so i mean a lot of it's just being very you know aware and i mean i track uh, i track everything so i'm watching them every earnings release after the market and if i see something stick out and i'm looking at the growth numbers etc then i'll dig into that company but i mean from the the ground up type perspective i'm often just running uh, screeners based on, you know, financial metrics, whether it's the growth or profit margins, or I don't, with a lot of these smaller growth companies, I don't really have a real issue with their valuations. I won't do a lot of valuation screening because they tend to grow into their valuation and I'm looking for, you know, companies that are going to grow for years and years. So mostly on the growth side, looking at, you know, what their revenues have done and finding companies in, you know, just and then also from a top down level, finding companies in industries that I like. So like the themes we've talked about and drilling down more into that. So, you know, if something's working, then you're like, oh, well, yeah, like I found quite a few interesting medical technology just with this COVID-19 thing, like uh, Massimo has been, and they're big into the patient monitoring. And then, um, yeah, so I, I mean, I screen them down. And then once I have these list of companies, I'll dig into them deeper by reading over their management transcripts, looking at their investor presentations, you know, uh, you can start with a 10 K and look at, you know, really basic, the basics of what their business is, who their customers are and just learn about the company. And then you also want to learn about their industry and the available market that they're targeting and their and then you want to learn about their competitors to make sure that they're going to, you know, be the company that thrives. So, there's a lot of different approaches, but just doing, you know, the, the groundwork, you know, grind and research and just really diving into it. Sure. I mean, yeah, it sounds like uh, you're, you're certainly an advocate for, for doing your homework, I suppose. That that last point about sort of competitors and making sure that I guess that they have some sort of differentiation against their competitors with, you know, within whatever sector or industry it is. Are there any particular sort of fundamentals or even just characteristics of a company that you look for that that are assigned to you that they are different enough that they will stand out and outperform? Yeah. I mean, you can do like comparative uh, analysis and looking at, you know, market share. And if, I mean, a comp- on a very simple level of the companies you know, generating revenues at a much faster rate than a peer while still having, you know, equal or better profit margins, you know, you know, that's a management team. They're doing something right. I mean, you can drill down deeper into other metrics that will analyze, uh, you know, how well a management's doing like uh, return on investment, invested capital and things like that. But uh, yeah, there's a, I mean, so I mean, actually even aside from that finding, one of my favorite things is to find a company that has a real good niche. You know, they're they're focused on one area of a really good industry and there's just not a lot of, you know, competition in the area. Plus it's that whole thing goes back to scarcity value that investors want to be involved in a certain theme that's growing really fast and there's just not a lot of avenues to do it. So, 
it's a simple allocation of capital type deal that can boost the stock for a long time. Um, there's a lot of companies like that in software where there's a specific niche now, like there's like Avalar is a really interesting company that, you know, they do like financial software for e-commerce companies to remain tax compliant. And there's, so finding a niche company is one of my favorite things to do too. Mm, sure. And then whilst we're sort of talking about specific uh, equities, I wonder whether you could tell us uh, about your best or just a favorite uh, trade. Uh, wait, are you, you mean like over my history? Yeah, or just one that sort of sticks in the mind from sort of recent memory. Yeah, I mean, I'm not like great with remembering good and bad trades. I kind of have that quarterback <laughs> mindset that they kind of teach you to have a very short memory and don't think about the last play and, you know, think about making the next play great. But uh, with that said, I think my, I mean, my favorite trades are being involved in call options when, a, you know, an acquisition deal is announced and being in the acquired company. So I often use options flow to find these kind of signals. And that was a few years ago. It might have been 2016 where I might have hit like 15 to 20 of these merger and acquisition deals where I was always in calls. So it was insane. But then in 2019, I only caught a handful. So it's a, it's an up and down type thing. But uh, yeah, that's definitely my favorite when you just get that morning pre-market news and you're in one of these names, whether it be the stock or the call option, and they're getting acquired for a nice premium because that's, that's the thing with options. I mean, you can make, you know, five, 10 X your money in a day on one of these and it kind of offsets if you, you lose here once in a while. And then on losing then, is there, is there a trade that, sort of sticks out as, as a worse or one that particularly hurt? Uh, again, it's not, I won't have like a specific one. It's, I mean, I try to always keep losses small and stay pretty disciplined, but uh, I mean, there's, there's times where I'll speculate on an earnings move and lose a hundred percent of the position, you know, the next day. But with that, I'm fully prepared to, you know, and willing to lose that position. So I allocate the amount of capital to it accordingly. But um my worst trades in equities always tend to some be in energy and commodities. It's just a group that has real no rhyme or reason to me for daily fluctuations. They pretty much trade with the underlying asset and there's not a, like a big bifurcation between the members of those groups. So I tend to thrive at finding the best in class companies in, you know, clear trends with secular tailwinds and in there it's more of just a crapshoot. You, you, you have to understand the, you know, the commodity and macro much more so. So I, I wanted to uh, pick up on this idea that obviously not everyone listening uh, will uh, trade options after after this interview, um, but some might be. Um, so I wanted to dig into how an options strategy can complement um, an equity trading strategy. And secondly, um, you know, even if an equity trader isn't trading options, can they learn something from options flow? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll answer your first question first is the... Uh just as a complimentary, there's, that's the, one of the great things about options that people should almost always be using. I mean, there's income strategies like writing covered calls against your positions where, you know, you're taking in extra money on your position. And even if you don't want to get called away, you can always roll that position and adjust it. So that, and along with uh, put sales is a very effective mean of, you know, defining exactly a price where you're willing to buy an equity, but, you take in a nice premium and sometimes you don't buy and you just get that capital. And it's actually in uh, mid March when I pretty much right at the market low, I, I wrote for Opto CMC, we put together like a, 
a portfolio of quality companies where I saw opportunities because of the high volatility to sell puts out longer dated, say December, 2020, January, 2021. And, you know, you're defining really low levels where the, you know, not only the valuation becomes great, but it's just would be an, an amazing level to own it. If you have to own it, um, all of those have rallied a ton and not only do you benefit from the stock moving up, but the uh, volatility has come down so much that pretty much none of those positions will ever get, you know, put, but you can buy them back now at much lower prices. So you, you collect that profit. Um, now getting into this, uh, well, also for the complimentary is just protective strategies in general. We talked a little before about the ETFs and being able to hedge sectors um, against your long stocks. There's also, I mean, broader market hedging, which you can do with index puts or put spreads or however you want to do it. And on an individual basis, you can, um, if you have a stock that's run a long way and you don't want to just sell calls against it, you can collar the stock. So you're, you're also protected on the downside, which would be selling an upside call and buying a downside put. So you're on the, you can try to, I usually with collars, I want to get into them at a, you know, pretty zero cost or a net credit so that you're not outlaying anything, but you're protected on the downside and you still give it runway to move to the upside. And then just on your second point, uh, yeah, I think equity traders can have a huge benefit from, you know, a site like ours and following options flow. It's one of the things I always stress and the tech I use it a ton. It's, I mean, 75% of my trading is probably equities. Um, the options flow is just something I use as an initial signal, you know, of what the smart money is doing, how they're positioning. And then I do the research to dive into the why they might be doing this to find the compelling investment opportunities, uh, which you can do via the calls or equity, any instrument really. Um, I mean, I take it also take a broader approach monitoring because I'm, I'm looking at these option flows every day across pretty much every name. So I'll find overall market signals based on how the flows are trending as well as like industry specific thing. Uh, it could be a, you know, a time period where I'm seeing multiple refiners or multiple gold miners receiving unusual call buying and it, it tends to give you really good signals and with that directional flow. And then, um, so we're talking about sort of a, a group of traders trading underlying sort of equities and then you've got your option traders on the other side. Um, uh, I, I mean, there's people out there doing both, I suppose. Um, are, are you one of them? Do, do you do both or do you kind of mainly focus your time on the options trading side of things? No, I definitely do both. Um, I mean, I tend to recommend to people that are looking to, you know, have larger option trading portfolios that even with that, not to allocate more than 25% of your capital to the, of the overall portfolio to options. Um, also, to, you know, especially on the directional side, I mean, the, income strategies and the complementary strategies you're, you're you know they're tied in with the equity portion of the portfolio um and just trying to keep the number of open positions manageable is important too because there's a lot more to watch with an options portfolio because you have to be aware of you know the volatility and the time decay and gamma and all that so it's just there's a lot more to be mindful of so it's not as easy to manage yeah that's something i hadn't considered actually uh, sort of time management must be uh, a massive part of uh, options trading is is it something that um you know people can do part-time or is it or is it really actually something you need to be monitoring sort of day in day out i think the 
time you have to put into it kind of determines the strategies and the approach that you would take and the activeness. So if you don't have a ton of time to put into it, you probably want to be looking maybe at, you know, a bit longer dated positions. You don't want to be, you know, putting weekly options and anything like that. And you can also, you know, change up your strategies instead of solely just doing simpler long call strategies. You can, you know, you can make volatility bets. You can, you can sell iron condors and expect the stock to stay in a range. There's just so many different approaches, but I think based on the amount of time you're willing to dedicate to it kind of determines which strategies you should use and what time frame you should be targeting. And then, so during this uh, current climate, this current market, um, is there an argument to say that uh, options traders are kind of more resilient to a downturn because you don't hold a hundred percent of the, of the underlying asset? Yeah. I mean, I think they fare a lot better just too, because of uh, kind of how we were talking before with a lot of the overnight movement too, they're, they're able to be protected a lot better than an equity trader that just has a simple stop loss that, you know, isn't relevant anymore when the market opens. So I think just uh, having that and that safety net and being able to, you know, be hedged and be more confident when the market's going down because, you know, you have these hedges in place really definitely makes them much more resilient and ability to stay real nimble and, you know, generate offsetting gains from their hedges. And then, so is that something you personally benefited from? sort of during this downturn that that extra layer of resilience yeah that and just my act my activeness i was just real nimble that i mean i had a lot of my signals i used that pretty much in late february was you know telling me to you know get in the safe safety whether it be cash bonds gold and i mean as much as i wish i was uh short equities or long put options much of march there was fairly tiny window that I saw to really pull the trigger before that liquidity issue evaporated and volatility soared. So once that happened, it was like, it happened. I mean, this move was unprecedented speed. And at that point, the appeal of the puts just became so less attractive and it was just a difficult environment to be confident because you're paying a ton of premium at that point to try to get into puts and I mean, and then those people that at that point panicked and did that, they're now they're hurting because we rallied back and everything kind of, you know, those puts decayed. So you just got to be real patient after a move like that happens. And it's just something I try to do. So as a, as a final question then of the, the main body of the interview, are you, are you more positive about, uh, about the outlook for the market now? Are you more risk on than you were? like we were talking about sort of a month ago or are you, are you still pretty cautious? No, I've kind of, this week I kind of started getting a little bit more cautious here, just as we kind of discussed before getting to the top end of what I see as a pretty applicable trading range for maybe the rest of the year, or at least until we see more clarity. I mean, I'm, I monitor this stuff very actively. So I, the, the economic data is just terrible. I mean, but we knew that was coming too. And we priced a lot of that in ahead of time. So, there's that counter and there's the Fed and the ECB and the BOJ counter, but just the opportunities on a valuation perspective is they started to dry up here as a lot of names have moved. And a lot of my favorite names are, you know, almost back at where they were at the beginning of the year trading at record highs. It's just not a lot of opportunities. And I'm definitely uh, 
I'd say I was one foot out of the door coming into the week and looking at the market today and about to get two feet out of the door. <laughs> sure. All right, then well, that's probably a nice place to uh, end the main body of the interview. I just wanted to finish with uh, some quick fire questions. Um, so just a sort of lighthearted way to end the interview. Um, you can answer these in as little as sort of one sentence or even one word if you like. So the first one, uh, in your opinion, in your opinion, what's the uh, top mistake uh, investors or traders make? I think just trying to be someone you're not. You really just got to find your own niche, your own style, and come up with your own custom plan, and not try to copy what somebody else is doing. And that, and one of my main mistakes is kind of giving the market too much credit and thinking that it uh, values news faster than it actually does. So I take profits too fast a lot. So. If you have a great idea, just kind of stick with it. And not only that, be willing to allocate a larger percentage of your capital when you find those real great ideas and try to really hone in on a few great ideas and not try to, you know, spread yourself too thin. Yeah, sure. Yeah, some good advice. Um, So the second one then, where do you go for your investment uh, or your business insights? I mean, honestly, I I don't find a lot of time to read the work of others. I've always been kind of a self made do it yourself type person. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I named myself uh, my company Options Hawk was just kind of the spiritual meaning of the hawk, having a higher vision and intuition and being able to see things from above and patience and, you know, having foresight. So just trying to stay focused on what we do. And I pretty much rely on our research for, you know, my investment insights. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, what what gets you mentally sort of ready and set up for the day as part of your morning routine? Uh, outside of coffee, I'd say uh, just <laughs> knowing that I have you know these a large group of people that are depending on me to put out research daily and cover the markets it really keeps me disciplined. And knowing that people depend on me keep me in that path that I'm not going to ever slip up and be like, Oh yeah, today I'll get out of bed late. you know, I'll just try to trade what I see in the market. No, I, I'm always going to get up at, you know, 5:45, 6 AM, gather all the news I can look for opportunities and just stay on top of things. So what's the, uh, the most memorable moment from your career today? I won't say there's a particular moment. I just think the entire journey has been memorable and probably has yet to culminate. I mean, started the company my wife always laughs is uh i found a desk and a chair on the streets of boston someone put out for trash day and i set it up with a laptop and a monitor and you know and i just kind of went from there and it grew and uh now that my two kids are kind of past the newborn stage i'm looking to do some real exciting things with the site and scale the business and really generate an awesome research platform so as well as having ambitions in money management and financial writing space so I think there's a lot more for me to do here and uh, uh we haven't hit the peak of uh you know my career yet <laughs> so then a final question what, what would be a top tip for your younger self i'd tell my younger self to take more risks especially when you're young uh, you have a long window of earnings power money loss can be made back and money itself isn't all that important in the grand scheme of things uh allocating like i said a larger percentage of capital your best ideas and letting them play out um other than that, I'd say just read, 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 whether it be books, uh, transcripts, investment letters, uh, the age of the internet. There's so much valuable content out there. And um, even media platforms like Twitter, you can really connect to some really insightful people and learn from them and 
just having that willingness to learn and be, you know, be a sponge. Um, it's, it's well worth the time. I've, I've always said, I'll read a 400 page book. And as long as there's even one sentence in there that kind of, you know, sticks with me and something that I can apply ritually, whether in life or trading, that book was well worth the time and money. No, that's fascinating. Well, that that brings us to the end of the interview. Uh, it's been it's been really great for me. I've 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 found it really interesting, and uh, I, I'm sure our listeners have too. So so thanks for joining us, Joe. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, I look forward to continue writing for you guys and putting out some content for your readers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off: if you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.